When people give to charity, they they usually want to give their money to good charities. But how can you actually maximize the amount of good you accomplish for each dollar you give? Uh, GiveWell does in-depth research to identify a short list of exceptional charities that do just that. Their top recommended charities are evidence-backed, and they help the poorest people in the world. So visit www.givewell.org to make your charitable donation go further. When video is done, they need to pivot back to audio in here. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, today we are back with Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff, original all-star weeds. Gang is back together. It's amazing. If you enjoy us, you should probably go to The Weeds Facebook group and uh, suggest some questions for our upcoming Q&A episode. Uh, Ask Weeds anything. Yeah, Literally anything. Not literally anything. It's we like might pretty, not answer. We some might of not the answer things. it, but you can ask anything. Like if it's super racist, we're probably not going to answer it. Ask ask anything, but we have a limited amount of time <laughs> in a show. Um, speaking of which, uh, we we want to talk today about the uh, network neutrality, which is uh, hotly debated, but I think rarely understood. So yeah, we've got a great show. Actually, I'm excited. We've got a big merger, some businessy weeds. Ooh. We've got uh, an important Raj Chetty paper on innovation. But yes, yeah, so let's talk about net neutrality, which we've been wanting to talk about on the show for a while. So FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has come out with a proposed rule that is going to basically reverse the Obama administration's rulings for net neutrality. And, and we're going to define all these terms and talk about what this is. But, but, but here's the big picture of what is actually happening, because what is actually happening is different than net neutrality itself. There are two ways you can regulate internet service providers. One is under uh, what's called Title I, which regulates them as an information service and is a pretty light form of regulation. So that was how they were regulated for some time uh, under Obama. And then I believe it was Verizon sued the Obama administration saying that what the Obama administration wanted to do in regulating them was not allowed under Title I. So then eventually they got moved under Title II, which is a telecommunication service. And under Title II, they're considered a utility. Right in the same way that electricity is a utility, or that you lots of things that are regulated utilities, we think they're basically monopolies because they are extremely expensive to lay down. So there's not really a lot of room for competition. The ISP market uh, seems to have a lot of that quality. It's very very expensive to do that kind of last mile service, and most of us uh, have one and maybe two. Uh, choices of what to do. Like I can have Comcast and I can have basically nothing else, for instance, where I live. So um, so that's where it was. They got put under Title II. So everybody, I don't want to say forgot about this, but moved on. They were making their investments. It wasn't a big deal anymore. And then uh, Donald Trump won the election. Ajit Pai was made FCC commissioner. He had written a blistering dissent when this happened the first time. And now he has come out and said he is going to roll it back. He's going to move them back under Title I. This has kicked off a huge, sort of very ferocious debate. People are, you know, there's a Save the Internet Coalition, our our friend over at The Verge, on one of Vox Media's lesser but also good podcasts, The Vergecast. Oh, you, you guys may not know, but at the Vergecast, they've been holding uh, a somewhat one-sided uh, rivalry with the weeds. I had no idea. Yeah. And frankly— that, That's a terrifying burn right there. <laughs> <laughs> and Who now even I'm engaged. <laughs> Fuck I mean, them. Maybe that's happening. Who's but to say? Nilay Patel over at The Verge has a great piece on sort of the internet is fucked again, um, which is a series of pieces he's writing about how the internet is fucked. But the basic idea is that if net neutrality is wiped out— we are going to have a situation where internet service providers who are already not a popular set of folks can meter what you see. They can decide you know, to run Netflix very slowly, but something else very fast. They can let Netflix pay them to run very fast, but new entrants will come in very slowly. And for a long time, it's been among techies, more or less an article of faith that net neutrality is essential to the to the proper functioning of the internet, for the internet as we know it to exist, for it to continue to be a place where you have a lot of ferment, a lot of creative disruption, a lot of new players coming in and disrupting incumbents. You need that that, that level informational playing field. So I thought it would actually be good to start with the case people don't hear that much, which is why might the FCC not think uh, regulating ISPs under Title II, which has become synonymous, but is really just a legal authority under which you can use, under which you can apply net neutrality regulations. Why, why, why may they not think that's so important, Matt? I mean, 
I do think it's important to emphasize that there's several different layers to this debate, right? And so one important question that I, I suspect we will not talk about a lot is the Administrative Procedure Act and, like, can Ajit Pai actually just flip-flop like this, right? There is a—and this is important, right? Like, America has—this is like a country. We have laws. Regulatory agencies have discretion, but it's not unlimited discretion. You're not supposed to have everything just ping-pong back and forth according to who's in office. So there's an important question about that, but it's not the most interesting aspect of this. Another important question is, you know, is the Title II regulatory classification just like bad policy framework for thinking about ISPs? Because under Title II, the FCC has very wide-ranging authority to do a lot of regulatory things. But most importantly, I think the FCC could, under Title II classification, start directly regulating broadband pricing schemes. Right. And and could get very sort of fine grained the way in most states you have an electrical utility and then there's some kind of utility service commission and they tell the electrical utility pretty much exactly what they can do with their business. And that's that's not something that there has been much support for doing in practice, which is why for a long time the Obama administration didn't move to the Title II regulation. Um, But you can see the sort of fears that exist around there. Then there's the actual, not the regulatory classification, but the actual rule that was put in place, which was to say, look, you have to treat all data as equal, right? And and so for what that means in practice, I think it's helpful for people to understand uh, their cell phone service. Uh, Because cell phone data does not have net neutrality rules applied to it, and you're allowed to do different kinds of things. So so my plan from T-Mobile, which is pretty standard these days, it gives me unlimited data, they say. So that's great. Unlimited data is great. But there's two important catches. One is that streaming video is sent across at 480p quality. So that's like DVD quality rather than Blu-ray quality. Uh, You know, so it's throttled. And the other is if I want to use my cell phone as a kind of uh, cellular modem to connect my computer to it, it's like tethering or, or mobile hotspot. Um, that for me is capped at 3G speeds rather than LTE speeds. Uh, so all four carriers' terms differ a little bit, but they all do those kinds of throttling for high definition video and for um, mobile hotspots. Because those are two really big data heavy use cases that most people don't really care about. Right. Like the the typical American is like not watching feature length movies on their cell phone or trying to not have home Internet service and just rely on their cell phone to do all their work. So they charge you extra for those kinds of features. Right. And the case for allowing that basically is by making it possible to squeeze you know, unusual use case customers for unusually large amounts of money, you make mobile network operating more profitable than it otherwise might be. And you encourage companies to build out their infrastructure to get, you know, more customers. So T-Mobile, for example, used to have a very limited LTE network. uh, But because being a cell phone operator is a profitable business, they're building more and more. So there's more competition. And the theory is that the typical consumer benefits from this, right? That like, I get unlimited data plan. I suffer through a couple of these caps, but it's not a big deal to me. Uh, we have a lot of investment in the sector, and like it's all really good. But can I ask a question on this? So I think the thing that irks a lot of people about the idea of net neutrality is favoring like like one website. You know, saying you know Netflix has to pay more, someone has to pay more. You're talking about a situation where like anyone who does video, anyone who wants to use it, I guess like how does this intersect with a lot of those concerns? We're not talking about them. I mean, T-Mobile now has its, like, Netflix free plan, so now they are picking, like, one that they like best. Right. But, like, how does this intersect well, with so, those concerns? So, right. So, I mean, there was a prior iteration of the mobile phone market in which the companies had the opposite policy. So it was data was capped, but then some services were exempt from the cap. So, like, the popular streaming music services 
would be exempt. Some of them still have this policy. It's right. called zero rating. Yeah. yeah well, T-Mobile does free Netflix. No, no, no. So they actually think. give you a free subscription oh. to Netflix. I don't understand right? which, my T-Mobile which, 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 which is different. <laughs> no, so they've been changing. There's, there's been a lot of change in the mobile. But but in the, in the zero rating era, people had a lot of concerns, right? Because zero rating in the short term for, for music streaming services, it seemed really good for consumers. I can listen to all the Spotify I want and not worry about it. But the problem with that was... If you have special deals with Spotify, RDO, Pandora, a handful of other services, then how could you ever start up a new streaming music service, right, when you don't already have the deal in place? But but I think to, to make the case against net neutrality, you would want to look at not at how mobile phones developed over time, right? When those zero rating deals first came on, there was a lot of alarm from activist circles. Like there was a, a Verge article, I, I think that Chris Ziegler wrote, and it was like the very first, um, it was T-Mobile's uh, music freedom plan. And he was like, this sounds great, but actually it's terrible, right? Because it was this non-neutral service that he thought was going to be the bleeding edge of like the destruction of the whole internet. But what actually happened was that you had competition among the different mobile phone providers, and it evolved not in the alarming way he was uh, saying, but in this much more benign way where it's like we went to unlimited data for almost everything except streaming video. So the the optimist's case on all of this, I would say, is that if you unshackle wireline ISPs and you allow mobile ISPs to continue to be unshackled, you are going to see more profitability in this sector and therefore more investment and more build out and more people are going to get faster options. More people are going to be in the favored quarter where you have two or three different wireline services and you're going to get ultimately a healthier marketplace. The sort of, I think the suppressed disagreement here is that the people who want strong net neutrality rules want to say, we should just accept that there will never be competition in this sector, and therefore we should regulate like it's a monopoly. Whereas the people who don't want to see net neutrality want to say, no, it's it's not true that this is a literal monopoly industry, and therefore what we want to do is deregulate it to encourage more investment. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's actually like the crux of, you know, as I've been reading up on it, the thing is like, how how do you expect this market to evolve? And that actually dictates a lot of the behaviors you might see coming out of it. Because if you really are going to have a monopoly, like if it is true, you know, I live somewhere where I can get one internet provider and like, whatever services they want to offer me, like, that's kind of what I'm at. Um, If you're going to be in a scenario, though, where there might be more competition, I think you'd be a little bit less worried about it. I guess the thing I could not put together from the kind of the people who are less concerned about the move back to Title I is kind of like the steps between getting from here to there. Like, what is going to happen that is going to encourage someone to get into the ISP game, given the massive investment it would take to to compete with who is there now. I mean, maybe you guys saw that Big spelled out. Big corporate income tax cut. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you guys saw that spelled out more clearly, but that was the part I felt like was, was really missing, was how a lot of people live right now in areas where they have one, maybe two internet providers. It felt very like step one, question mark, profit, or whatever that meme is. That It felt like it was unclear to me how you get from here to there. I mean, I do so, think so change that. One thing here is that within this debate, you've got a lot of people managing questions of hypothetical harms mm-hmm. and hypothetical benefits. So I think probably the best defense of Ajit Pai's decision was written by Ben Thompson over at Stratechery. And, and I don't agree with all of it, but we will put it in, in, in show notes. And, and his basic argument is, look, regulation imposes a cost, and we don't even know what that cost is. So if you're going to impose that cost, particularly on a, on a sector as important as the internet sector, the digital sector, then you have to be responding to a very clear harm. And his argument is that there's not a very clear harm that is being responded to, that there are a couple of examples of ISPs in some way or another throttling individual services in ways that that, that should worry us. But as he kind of tells the history, 
those have been beaten back pretty quickly, pretty simply, and he sees this as a low-regulation error that mostly worked. Um, the people who disagree with him, who I actually find pretty persuasive on this, they argue that a lot of that was in a high-regulation era, that th- those individual stories are a little bit different than he puts them. I, I don't want to get super deep into the details, but I, I do want to get into a little bit of why there is a concern here. So, there's one version of looking at what the major internet service providers could do, which is really just about data management. And maybe it's about extraction of rents. So Comcast says Netflix takes up a huge amount of their system. And also Netflix has a lot of money. And so Netflix should just pay a little bit more, right? They, 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 they should, to get the kind of very low latency, very high bandwidth that they need to keep going, they, they should have to like kick in a little bit more to the pot in a way that other players don't have to. So that sounds okay. On the other hand, the thing that's really important here is that ISPs are becoming vertically integrated content providers. So we've mentioned Comcast a couple of times here. Something we should say about Comcast is it is a big minority investor in Vox Media. It also owns NBC Universal. It also is a big investor in BuzzFeed. So one thing Comcast might want to do is give BuzzFeed and Vox and the NBC Universal package a little bit of a boost on Comcast services, uh, you know, because that makes them more valuable or, or, or makes their investments more valuable or whatever it might be. And this is not just hypothetical. There's a lot of this kind of thing happening. Verizon owns Yahoo and AOL and has spun them into a company called Oath. They also own a video platform called Go90. Um, and we do see weird things happening here. So AT&T at one point exempted DirecTV from certain from certain things. I can't remember which one of them did this, but one of them for a period of time was making it very hard to use FaceTime, but you could very easily use Skype. I think that was Verizon. I'm just not sure which phones, one. I want to say. I want to say it was AT&T, but no. somebody did this. It's not happening anymore. But the thing is that these players have a lot of investments throughout the throughout the market, and they're trying to compete very directly with established incumbents. So it's like you can imagine a couple different sets of problems here. One is that these players begin in ways either that are clear or not that clear, trying to favor their associated platforms over these kinds of internet upstarts that Comcast or AT&T or whoever it is, they want to own not just the pipes, but they want to own more of the content. And so that means pulling back on Netflix and amping up Hulu. It means making it really easy to watch NBC, but not that easy to watch whatever it might be, CNN. Okay, so that's one thing. Another is that it becomes a kind of in incumbent protection package. So Google and Netflix and some of these other big players, Facebook, Hulu, Amazon Prime, they can all pay a lot of money to get preferential ISP treatment. But your little mom and pop startup that is maybe doing something that requires a lot of bandwidth cannot. And so just in a totally natural way, people end up gravitating towards the services that work better and not the services that don't work as well. Now, one thing you'll sometimes hear net neutrality opponents say is that Netflix and Facebook and Google and all these things have invested so much money into their data architecture and where those things are located that they are already operating off of a kind of latency advantage over the other players. And so just being able to straightforwardly buy your way into that market might be a good thing. I don't find that persuasive because Netflix could both buy into the market and use their other latency advantages, but your mileage on that may vary. So so those are the two concerns, really, that one, the con- the ISPs are going to try to use their power to give their content packages a boost and Two, that it will become a sort of incumbency protection program that will make it harder for new entrants to come in and overturn and, and sort of keep the internet moving. On the other side, there's this idea of just we don't know what kind of regulations there will be. We don't know what kind of innovation there might be in the absence of those regulations. We don't know what would be invented if you could just buy super low latency packages so then you could have a business that maybe required super bandwidth hogging that you're not going to get otherwise. That the internet has kind of worked out okay There's been regulation. um, People debate how much there's really been, but there's been regulation. But maybe we should be be in a pretty light-touch space, but try to um, just respond if there's a harm on it. Um, That said, I want to hear Matt on this, but first I want us to take a break. Hey, folks, uh, here here with a message from one of our very smart sponsors, uh, The Economist magazine. It's a really great magazine. I've read it for for many years, since long before there was such a thing as podcasts or even iPods or anything really that had the word pod in it. Um, They know, you know, I really value their insights and the stories that shape our world. So they're offering all Weeds fans a free copy of the magazine. 
uh, you know, if you if you like the weeds, The Economist is going to give you a chance to dig deeper into a lot of what's going on in the world. It's not like a, a heavily ideological horse in the race kind of magazine. They give you straight up facts on, on a big range of vital topics from politics to technology, science to the environment. Uh, yes, economics, business. I, I really like them as a, a source for, for world and, and international news. Uh, it's a very global perspective that the magazine takes. Uh, so, you know, we only get into the weeds on so many stories. Do yourself a favor. Visit www.economist.com slash weeds to sample a free copy of The Economist right now. They got the lowdown on the forces that impact our lives and change our world. They don't waste a single word. They cut through the noise, help you stay entertained and well-informed. Uh, so here's what you need to know. Dig into The Economist today. Visit www.economist.com slash weeds. Or, you know, just, just Google Economist Weeds. Sample your free copy there. You're going to enjoy it. This is where I think the, like, annoying regulatory details make a big difference, right? Which is that a common sort of talking point of people who are relaxed about Pi's move is that ISPs have been regulated under Title I for most of the broadband era, and there was no big problem. That is true. Uh, What is also true is that for most of the Title I era— there were net neutrality rules were applied under the FCC's Title I authority. Mm-hmm. Then there was a critical court case which said that Title I didn't give them the authority to impose net neutrality rules. So we had a very brief span of time in which there was Title I authority and the modern judicial understanding of what Title I authority means – We don't really know what would have happened had that brief period of time extended because almost right away, there was a big political move to get the shift to Title II. Right. And ISPs, which we're really only talking about a handful of companies here. Right. I mean, there's a lot of companies who have very, very, very small market shares in Internet service providing. uh, But we're really talking about AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, Charter, a, a, a small number of companies who can literally just like have a phone call and talk about their political strategy. And obviously, during that brief window of opportunity, when they knew the Obama administration was considering flipping the Title II switch, they weren't going to, like, leap out and go do the most outrageous thing that might possibly have been cooked up. Then we shifted to Title II. That only lasted a little bit of time. So Pi is talking about bringing us to a situation that we have never really had before, in which not only will there be light-touch regulation on these carriers, but they will be guaranteed that the light-touch will continue. Something I would feel a lot more comfortable with him doing is actually the, the so Ben Thompson puts forward what what sounds I think like a wise compromise that like the neutral internet is good, but the Title II regulation is inappropriate. I would almost rather see them do the opposite, in which they say they are maintaining incredibly wide-ranging Title II regulatory authority, but that they have been convinced that maybe they should let them apply non-neutral rules and see what happens. Because that then means that if you did something that was crazy and that prompted a huge public backlash— the FCC could clamp down, which would tend to inspire you as a company to not do something that would inspire a huge backlash. Because I actually think there are a lot of reasonable, non-neutral things that cable companies could do, right? So right now, the normal way that that an ISP will meter usage, because they do meter usage, they just do it in a neutral way. And so it's that most people get artificially slow broadband internet. Right. You'll have like the 25 megabits per second package, even though like the infrastructure that goes to your house supports 50 because they want to charge the people who really want to use 50 a little bit more money. Right. So it's this incredibly inefficient price discrimination scheme. If you could go to those exact same people and say everybody gets 50, but unless you pay extra, your video is going to be downgraded to 480p. Um, which is how the the cell phone companies do it, that would be just like a much more efficient way of doing that price discrimination package, right? Like it would allow people who don't want to use tons and tons and tons of of streaming video to just get the fastest internet 
that has already been built for them, which right now you have tons of people not accessing the infrastructure that exists. And it's really bad. Um, So if you said, look, we'll let you do non-neutral things, but we also have the hammer of neutrality to, like, discipline you if we think you're fucking around— that to me would be a potentially better outcome than what what he's talking about doing, which is tying the FCC's hands. So now no matter what happens, there's not going to be a regulatory response. And, you know, I I think the viewpoint that 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 Pi wants to put forward is, well, no, we need to give these providers like the certainty of deregulation to unleash the utopian era of high investment. But that to me I think that's disingenuous. We're really talking about a small community of people, a handful of large technology companies, an even smaller number of big broadband companies. Extremely profitable even now, by the way. Right. These are all profitable companies. And I mean, this is like not, it goes a little bit against the grain of like contemporary American thinking. But like, what you really want to do here is get policymakers and the interested companies like in a room together. And, like, get them to work together and do something that would be better rather than, say, we're going to have this arm's length posture where we have to regulate nothing and then just kind of hope that there's more investment. But I think there's also a question. We were talking about this just before we started taping of, like, what neutrality are you going for? Because I think, like, the idea you suggest, the idea that, you know, people, you if you don't pay more, you're going to get this downgraded video is one type of a lack of neutrality. It's very different from the one that Ezra suggested where Comcast says your Vox article loads super speedy because we're an investor in Vox. And I think those feel pretty different to people. I think the debate is often about the latter, the idea of vertical integration, that we might get faster speeds on Comcast. You know, other folks would prioritize their own content versus, I don't know, the idea of like paying more so I can have higher video quality that feels, you know, kind of goes back to the cell phone example you were mentioning earlier about how cell phone plans have often worked. That feels less like you're picking out like one particular video provider versus, you know, a class of of providers, not just one particular video provider website. Yeah. And I do think I mean, I think there's an important question in in the antitrust aspect of this, which is like, why have we allowed integration of wire owners with content owners, right? I mean, this is an issue that is coming up in the AT&T-Time Warner merger, uh, but obviously the existence of Comcast as a conglomerate and the former corporate existence of Time Warner was a thing where, you know, so Comcast is, they, they're they a cable company, right? Like they own cable infrastructure and internet infrastructure, but they also own cable channels and they also own TV and movie studios and they also invest in digital media brands, right? And I... I think, especially if we allow a non-neutral internet, we should really, really, really question like why we are permitting that form of vertical integration. That the deal that w- the agreement that allowed the sort of creation of the Comcast NBC Universal merger involves Comcast like promising a million times that they're not going to like illicitly advantage their own content, but. It seems natural to ask, like, what is the purpose of this corporate structure if not to illicitly advantage your own content? And I think people's suspicion that these mergers, these regulatory changes they're looking for in net neutrality, that there is like a long game being played here in which people are eventually envisioning some kind of fully integrated stream in which if you live in a Comcast neighborhood, you like can't watch CBS programming. And like, that's really bad. But it does seem to me that like, antitrust law and merger enforcement rather than telecommunications law is the tool that we have traditionally used to to prevent this kind of integration. Like a um, a bank can't also own a hardware store is like a, a principle of American law. A and drugstore might soon own a health insurance company, indeed. which comes up soon, but we won't get there yet. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, that is how I would address vertical integration. Well, and to be fair, one of the odd things happening here is that the Trump administration is blocking the AT&T Time Warner merger at the same time that they are running these net neutrality yeah i mean different different, different arms but it's just an interesting note pushing in different directions i do just want to say that the president's the, been up late reading memos <laughs> <laughs> one of the just the pieces of all this which 
I think just really drives where you come down is how much do you trust our regulators and how much do you trust the ISPs? Because look, if we were in Sweden or even if we were under the Obama administration, I might actually have a different view of this. But one of the the difficulties here is that I don't trust Donald Trump's FCC particularly. I, I don't trust Donald Trump. I don't think that he is putting regulators in charge of things who have a strong consumer-oriented uh outlook. So I don't think that they are, I don't think that they're trying to create a structure where they're going to come in and regulate uh, offenses. I think they're trying to create one where they don't come in and regulate offenses. And then ISPs, this goes a little bit to Matt's point about, well, how do you read this massive effort at vertical integration happening across basically all of these companies, not just buying content, but constructing content platforms that they own, like Go90 under Verizon. ISPs are not popular players. (laughs) People do not seem to feel they are heavily responsive to consumer demand. Um, I recognize that, you know, Comcast and others, like they they have their answers for for why nobody likes them. But it is worth noting that uh, only 64% of Americans are satisfied with their, their, their internet service provider, which is the lowest rating of all industries surveyed by the American Customer Satisfaction Index. These are not popular companies. They're all among some of the least popular companies in the country. And, and by the way, for good reason, you know, we're talking about ISP competition here. It's worth noting that there have been a bunch of cities and states that have been interested in creating municipal broadcasts broadband using fiber. And these ISPs have lobbied heavily at the state uh, legislature level to stop that from happening. I mean, they use their power, they use their money to block other entrants from coming into the market, uh, certainly public entrants from coming into the market, which I think should concern us. The other thing that concerns me here is the more something becomes part of your business model, the more you fight to protect it. And so there is a a way in which right now, because uh, as Matt says, the ISPs have not been under in a world where they could heavily use, uh, heavily meter or heavily uh, discriminate against different kinds of traffic. And that that has not been part of their business model. They've fought on net neutrality. They, They would like more freedom, but it's not a life or death struggle for them. These are very, very powerful, very profitable companies working in a a, a neutral um, regulatory regime already. In a world where we've had six, eight, ten years, and it's become really important to them, and they're that much bigger, and they're that much more profitable, but also at that point they begin using their leverage and using their power to do anti-consumer things – I think they're going to be much harder to stop. I think it'll be much, they'll have much more power. I think the regulators will be much more impotent. I think that, you know, it isn't that one might not want to come in at that point, but 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 can one? I, I think it'll be really difficult. And so my concern here is that on the one hand, the sort of net neutrality, I almost don't want to call them net neutrality opponents, but the opponents of broad regulatory authority on the part of regulators are arguing that, hey, look, if there's a problem down the road, we'll fix it. But to the extent there's not a clear problem now, like, let's not be too heavy-handed here. And I think you could just make the reverse argument just as easily, which is, if there's a problem down the road, we probably won't be able to fix it, because that's not how political power works. So to the extent there is not a problem at the moment— and regulators have a lot of power, and you recognize that because of the way political power works, you probably won't be able to fix something if you unleash these forces for 10 years. Like, why don't we not change anything and just just keep going down the path we're on? We have more merger talk ahead. Holidays are coming up, and we all know what that means. Parties, presents, and ugly sweaters. Uh, The Art of Shaving can't really help you with the ugly sweaters, but they can help you impress everyone on your holiday gift list. This year, take gifting to the nines with the 12 shaving creams and more of Christmas, all formulated with essential oils and botanical ingredients. Uh, Secret Santa at the office, from from spicy and citrusy to warm and woodsy, the Art of Shaving's sophisticated fragrances are well-suited to anyone at the office. Uh, For your bearded buddies, uh, the Art of Shaving is stubble balm, beard oil, beard balm, and styling waxes because friends don't let friends' beards get out of control. For a favorite uncle, head to one of the Art of Shaving's barber spas for a royal shave and a day of bonding. For a little brother, you know, introduce him to manhood. Help him up his game by upgrading his shaving routine with a fully stocked shaving kit that includes everything he'll ever need to shave like his favorite older bro. Get ready for the holiday party circuit from head to mistletoe by picking up a shaving kit for yourself. For your number one dad, build a custom shaving kit. You get a complete, elegant, rose gold-handled safety razor and brush and a number one dad mug. 
Uh, one more for yourself. Sign up for the Artist Shavings Convenient Replenishment Service. It's the gift that keeps on giving all year long. So get a head start on the holidays now. Listeners, you can get 15% off your first order and free shipping when you use promo code WEEDS. To get this offer, visit theartofshaving.com. Use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Or find a retail location near you for a consultation from the Art of Shaving's own master barbers. So earlier this week, we got news of a kind of unusual healthcare merger that is in the works. The um, drugstore CVS that you are probably familiar with and have purchased products at, um, they are, it appears they're going to be purchasing the health insurance company Aetna, which um, has unleashed a lot of great um, jokes about how long their seat will be. So <laughs> very original, everyone on Twitter. Um, but also, how long their seat will be? Receipt. You know, receipt. Oh, receipt. Yes. Yes. I, I just heard seat. Uh, oh, the receipt. It makes more sense with the that rough. Makes, yes. Um, you know, it's like it's a $69 billion purchase. So <laughs> it'd be very long. There'd it'd be, be a lot nice of if you could get Do you think they'll use auto checkout? I hope so. Yeah, you just scan it, you know. Buy or one if the, you could get the insurance company on the phone 24 hours a day okay, like CBS. Well, yeah. good. All right. Well, we got our jokes here, too. So, But it actually is a really interesting, unusual healthcare merger that is harder to understand than a lot of the mergers we've seen in healthcare lately. So a lot of the mergers we typically see in healthcare is one hospital system buying another, one health insurance plan buying another. And generally what we know about those is when you have more consoli- more consolidation, it gets worse for consumers. Hospitals often say, you know, we're, we're going to become more efficient. And maybe they do, but m- most of the research we have suggests they hold on to those efficiencies, that they just raise the prices when there is less competition in their market. The same thing with health insurers when you see, and we recently had a health insurance merger blocked um, by the Obama administration for worries that it would be very bad for consumers. And there's um, been kind of an arms race, right, between the hospitals and the insurance Yeah, company. yeah. So hospitals keep consolidating, insurers keep consolidating, because if you're going to have one hospital chain in town, you want to bring, you know, a really big health insurance company to negotiate with that hospital chain. Um, and if you're interested in this research, there's a woman at the Harvard Business School, Limor Daphne, who's really done most of the groundbreaking research on this and really finds that it usually doesn't end well for consumers. The Aetna-CVS merger is very different and interesting to healthcare nerds because we've never really seen a drugstore buy a health insurance company. It is much more of a vertical merger than it is the ones we've seen between insurance companies, between hospitals. And it also gets into like a lot of the weird guts of how healthcare works. So one of the big parts of the CVS merger You know, part of it, they say, is about the Minute Clinics, about providing care to Aetna members, that they can provide care more cheaply because they're going to see people in these retail settings and that they are going to be competitive in that sort of way. But one of the other things going on behind the scenes is CVS is one of the country's largest pharmacy benefit managers. What's a pharmacy benefit manager? (laughs) Which is one of these, like, weird back-end, like, I get nervous just trying to learn about them because they're such an odd part of the American health care system. So so most insurance companies contract with a pharmacy benefit manager to negotiate with drug companies to figure out drug prices and essentially give them like an entire formulary. So usually Aetna does not sit down with Pfizer to knock out like, here's the drug prices. Instead, um, CVS, which is also a pharmacy benefit manager, it gets Aetna, it gets, the, these are not actually its partners, I'm just making up um, some theoretical ones, but it gets Aetna, let's say Blue Cross, um, all these insurance companies to the table and says, okay, we represent like four insurance companies, Pfizer, we want a good deal on this drug or, you know, we're going to go with the thing that your competitor AbbVie makes. And the idea is to create more market power, um, you know, consolidated in one of these pharmacy benefit managers. There is a been a lot of attention paid to pharmacy benefit managers in the healthcare space in the few in the re- recent years. There is a suggestion that they are keeping a lot of those savings for themselves. That they're kind of this odd regulatory or not um, more like bureaucratic cog in the healthcare system. That it's this middleman layer. It's unclear if it's actually saving money. If it is saving money, it seems like a lot of those savings are just going to the pharmacy benefit managers themselves, and then being passed on to the insurance companies. What Aetna is doing here, and I will say a lot of people aren't really sure how to think about it, so there's no clear answer of what comes out of this. 
But Aetna would be buying one of the country's largest pharmacy benefit managers. CVS presumably would not work with other companies once acquired by Aetna. And there is a question of, you know, do they become more efficient? Do they share these savings? Wait, can I ask you, yeah. is that true? Is that the theory that you could no longer go into a CVS? And, oh, no, and... no. So these are separate. So let's no, separate that's the these. pharmacy. That's the pharmacy, not the pharmacy benefit manager. Oh, okay. okay so obvious. No, <laughs> this is very no, no, this is this is very confusing. <laughs> and it's like, so you could likely, the expectation is like you could have, you know, Kaiser and still go fill your prescriptions at CVS. Kaiser could not work with CVS to negotiate its drug benefits anymore. Got it. Like it could not have CVS as a pharmacy benefit manager. Um, So the idea is it would purchase it, it would take it off the market, they would work together. And, you know, some economists, um, Austin Fract made this argument in the upshot recently, think there could actually be some benefits from this, that pharmacy pharmacy benefit managers have long been this kind of middleman. If you integrate into the health insurance company, that you might see some of those, some of that go away. But again, this actually goes back a little bit to our our conversation around net neutrality. That assumption kind of rests on there being some kind of competitive market that Aetna wants to lower its premiums because it's trying to attract more people to its health insurance plan. And a lot of places, I don't think that's that's true. I think you know a lot of places Aetna is kind of the dominant carrier. If you want to go to the hospitals, you need to get an Aetna plan, and not just Aetna. In a lot of places, the markets are pretty concentrated. Hey Sarah, can I ask you a question? What's that? I've heard prescription <laughs> drugs are a lot cheaper in in many foreign countries, such it's as uh, such as Canada or um, I've heard that Sweden. as well. Um, is is that because those countries have consolidated <laughs> their insurers with the pharmacy benefit managers to gain uh, more efficient bargaining strength? I mean, I guess you could say they they have in a way that it's all run by the government. Right? Oh, interesting. <laughs> but what is your like? I don't know what are I, I, what is your argument that you're getting? This at? is where I was going to go with this okay. too, which is that I think every argument for this merger works better as an argument for single payer, <laughs> right? Right. That we have all these middlemen cream skimming sure. off of the system. It's crazy that, town. That <laughs> you have like, like what if really one great- company paid for all the pharmaceutical drugs, but then kept the profits for its shareholders? <laughs> like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> so like, it, it is interesting because I think a lot of these arguments might be correct, but they're arguments for single payer that... You want consolidation. For people you who want, can't see us, like, man, Matt is, is losing, losing his shit. it in the studio right now. It's cool. But, sorry, go on. <laughs> it's, it's funny that that is, like, some of the hardest I've seen Matt laugh. It's almost not even a joke that has happened here. These are good arguments, possibly, for this merger, and they are better arguments for single payer. So, basically, the, the argument for this merger is that the healthcare system is too fractured, that payers need more market power to get good deals, that there are there's big rents, big economic benefits being extracted out by providers, that um, there's just like a lot of like administrative bullshit and, you know, fracturedness and, you know, that, that there's just, that, that we could use more centralization. And also, by the way, to, to go even further in single payer towards much more integrated systems like, say, Singapore, that it would be better if, the payer also was integrated into the point of care, right? Into the medical delivery system itself. And a lot of those things so you're make saying sense. if the insurance company is also the hospital. If the idea is that it would be so great if insurance companies yeah. own minute clinics, right? And then you could go get mm-hmm. primary care there. Well, you go get a lot of primary care in Singapore from primary care providers owned by the government. Uh, and, and that's true, by the way, in the UK, of course, which owns its own hospitals. I mean, it's true in a bunch of places. I sort of see the argument for a highly, highly competitive insurance system. Um, I just don't think it's really working. Um, You can see the conceptual argument for it. I think for a lot of reasons, it doesn't work that well. And I can see the argument for a highly consolidated system, in which case I think you're better off using public players. But this seems to me to be an admission that the highly consolidated system is even where the players themselves are going. And either the government needs to like step in and reverse this massive wave of consolidation that has happened all across the industry, including in hospitals, to go back to the idea of like, maybe we want just much more aggressive antitrust. Or I think it's, you know, we're getting closer and closer to, you know, maybe we should just have Medicare for all. Yeah, or CVS for all. it's, It's like... If you had the NHS, so there was no choice, but it was owned by a private company, so they just made the prices really high. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't understand it at all. Yeah. This is like 
I mean, I remember this in earlier phase when it was the insurance companies consolidating, mm-hmm. right? And it was like, well, this will be good because they can bargain more with the hospitals. Mm-hmm. But then the hospitals started consolidating and they're like, well, we can bargain more with the doctors. <laughs> and like, yeah, but like at the bottom of this, don't we just have, like if we want the prices to be lower. I mean, you've written more about this than anyone, Sarah. <laughs> like they could just pass a law and make the prices I mean, lower. Yeah, they could. Well, they can't right now. So that's like not really in the... <laughs> In the cards. But the thing that makes me skeptical about, so I, I've read a lot of these arguments that, you know, if you get rid of, if, if you essentially get rid of the pharmacy benefit manager, that it's just, you know, the insurance company, it's owns the pharmacy benefit manager, it's negotiating directly. I don't see why you don't keep that money that like the pharmacy benefit yep. managers have been keeping and why not keep it just at, instead of keeping it at CVS, you know, keep it at Aetna CVS. Yep. Because there is so little incentive to um, to lower your premiums. Like when you're one of the only games in town, or if you're, you know, working with people who are employed, or generally like Aetna, Aetna doesn't really sell in the ACA marketplaces. They mostly just sell co- insurance to large companies. And, you know, Vox will just pass that on to us and like our premiums will go up a little bit, but it's like still tax advantage to give us health insurance. That there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of incentive to take that money you save and pass that on to consumers. And that's what we've seen like in Lee Moore Daphne's research, that there are often these promises of greater efficiency. And sometimes they're realized like they do become more efficient, but those gains just like, what is the reason if you are Aetna and CVS to pass those gains on to your consumers? And I don't think the reasons are very strong. So I, I think you're right, but I think it's just worth making at least the theoretical argument for why they're strong, which is that particularly at the employer level, you know, Vox Media does look every year or two to decide who it's going to contract with to cover its people, as do most mm-hmm. big companies. And we've changed it in the time I've been here, right? We were getting a better deal from one company and then we went to another company. I've I've had that happen at other places I've been to. I mean, companies at some level are price sensitive. Actually, one of the reasons I'm more worried about this is that the thing that they are overall most sensitive to, though, is that their employees like their health mm-hmm. plan, particularly if you're, if you're going after employees who are in demand in the market. And I mean, we'll see, but it, it doesn't seem likely that CVS would begin locking out other health plans. But to the extent that it's a real advantage to be on an Aetna plan at CVS, like maybe it's just an integration of ease, right? It's just mm-hmm. somehow much easier to work with our pharmacy. It's all integrated into the apps and whatever right. it might be. Or you could see like the minute clinics becoming in some way more exclusive Absolutely. to Aetna members. And so one version of this is if you believe that you're dealing with perfect price competition, then something like this you you could imagine. But I think what we've seen over and over and over and over and over again in health insurance is that you are not dealing with perfect price competition. In fact, people are relatively, compared to other things, more price insensitive and very sensitive to um, benefits. They're very sensitive to ease. They're very sensitive to being able to use the doctors and pharmacies and et cetera that they have been using and that are closest to them. And so the more you are able to leverage that side of it, the less incentive you would have to keep prices down. Right. Because one thing I could see is like CVS developing the minute clinics almost into like a one medical type model and like making that a service exclusive to Aetna members. And I guess like this would be the case for it, that, that it might actually work and benefit consumers is that you'd have this kind of primary care model that would be good for the insurance company if you're able to cut off some of the more expensive care and that, you know, like I I receive nothing from One Medical. I just like being a patient there because they have short waits and like it's easy to schedule online and they let me text with their doctors and like those are services I I really like. And when I was shopping for health insurance this year, like I wanted a plan that included that. I was less price sensitive and like much more, like you're saying, interested in the benefits I was getting. Right. And so let me flip the argument here for a second and say that this is the argument people who prefer having a lot of private insurers will make. And I think the argument that one would make for a merger like this, which is that private insurers are going to try to innovate on service, on delivery, on other things in ways that, you know, Medicare does not. And so it's great. CVS buys Aetna, I'm sorry, Aetna buys CVS. And 
is going to build- CVS buys that now. CVS buys that now, I'm sorry. <laughs> and builds out this massive new network of pretty interesting primary integrated primary care insurance delivery. If that works, other players in the market have to emulate it. United Health is already doing their own kind of vertical consolidation. It's different and a little bit more complicated, but it's there. Others, some, you know, you could totally imagine some mega insurer buying one medical and scaling that very, very rapidly at a more premium level. And that this is a kind of innovation that you're always hoping to see in the private insurance market, and that actually this kind of integration into primary care is great. Um, and if you had the, the argument actually for going to single payer is an argument about prices, whereas the argument for staying in this kind of weird fractured system is an argument for innovation. Uh, if you believe this is innovation that could ultimately prove worthwhile, I do think it's worth giving the a different perspective on this deal as somebody who used to cover um, the retail industry more, right? Looking at this through the other lens of the telescope, what you have is CVS, right, is a is a pharmacy company. It started an industry that we associate with the sale of prescription drugs. But obviously, a modern-day CVS uh, is like a general merchandise store. Uh, there's, in fact, a CVS near our office that doesn't even have a pharmacy unit attached to it. Lots of CVS locations don't have minute clinics at all. Uh, but one thing they did was that they used their existence as a retailer of prescription drugs to get into the pharmaceutical benefits manager field. And one nice thing about their PBM business is that they are not competing with Amazon, which is like destroying brick and mortar retail slowly but surely. And so one thing that they are doing here is simply like not realizing any efficiencies at all or in like a good or a bad way, but just trying to kind of like keep climbing the ladder and get further and further away from direct competition with this like Jeff Bezos retail Goliath that it like seemed natural to integrate retail sales of prescription drugs with pharmacy benefit management. And now if you can integrate pharmacy benefit management with health insurance management, you can maybe at some future point just like sell CVS's real estate assets, get some cash, pay out a special dividend, and now you're a health insurance company. And like that just like might be an attractive series of business moves that reflect no intention to like do anything business-wise, but just like, uh, for example, like Hilton, right, which you might once was a company that um, owned and built hotels. They now strictly manage and license branding. They don't own any real estate assets uh, because, I don't know, like brands evolve over time and try to get out of, you know, bad businesses and into good ones. I'm just going to put a pin in that I think one day we should do a Weeds episode on antitrust in Amazon. Yeah. Because I think the question of how to think about Amazon and all this right. that, that you glanced on there, you glancingly touched on there, is a really interesting That's a great well, one. Don't ask us a question about that because we'll address it separately. They're <laughs> playing a role. So Amazon's getting into the pharmacy business, too. So they have licenses in 12 states now to do wholesale pharmacy. They oh, can't not, They can't sell directly. They can't sell drugs online. But like I'm sure Jeff Bezos would love to. You know, let me fill my prescription online and have Amazon mail it to me. So I would also love that. There's also there's also some chatter about like what role this is a defensive move against Amazon slowly encroaching into the pharmacy space. Better take another break. If you follow business news at all, uh, you might have heard of Reid Hoffman. He's a legendary Silicon Valley investor and entrepreneur. He co-founded LinkedIn, invested early in Facebook and Airbnb. Everyone in tech goes to him for advice on how to make something huge. And he's back with the second season of his amazing podcast, Masters of Scale. In the new episodes, Reid talks to famous founders about what really happens as companies grow from zero to a gazillion. Uh, guests on Masters of Scale include famous founders like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Brian Chesky of Airbnb, Reid Hastings of Netflix, Sheryl Sandberg, also from Facebook, Kara Golden of Hintwater, and the guests aren't just retelling the same stories you always hear. They've got real tools and on-the-ground advice that you can use to build your business. The stories on Masters of Scale are always honest, always useful, often pretty funny. There's no jargon, no posturing. Guests are 50-50 gender balanced. It's a, it's, it's a refreshing look for a tech show actually hear from women in the industry. So be sure to catch the new Masters of Scale with PayPal founder Peter Thiel, VMware and Google's Diane Green, Slack Stuart Butterfield, and much, much more. This week is, is one that I wrote about. It's the latest in the long series of studies that Raj Chetty and his colleagues at the Equality of Opportunity Project have been doing. Uh, they produce a lot of uh, county-level maps of the United States where they showed the geography of different things. Um, in this case, 
I think the geographical component was in some ways uh, not as as interesting as it is in, in some of these. And they're looking at, they take a big list of patent data and they link it up with individual income tax return data. So they're able to analyze statistically for the first time, what are the demographic characteristics of people who get patents in the United States. Uh, and they show that people who get patents tend to be white or Asian as opposed to black or Hispanic. Um, they tend to be men as opposed to women. And they tend to have parents who were in the top 20% of the income distribution as opposed to the bottom 80%. None of that is extraordinarily shocking on its own terms. I mean, I think it's probably what you would have guessed if I asked you to take a wild guess at it. Um, But they're then able to integrate that with some interesting information about test scores. And they show that from the sort of favored groups, right, that if you're looking at white men uh, from affluent families, that your math and science test scores when you're young in school very heavily correlate with your odds of becoming an inventor, uh, which is, I mean, it's sort of obvious, right? It's like you, you have to be pretty smart and have technical skills to make useful inventions. Uh, But what's fascinating is in the disfavored groups, right, for for women and especially for lower-income people and for Black and Latino people, it's like a totally flat curve. Like, the kids who are bad at math don't become inventors, but the kids who are good at math also don't become inventors. And the implication is that there's a relatively large number of highly skilled, low-income, Black, Latino, and female uh, people who are not receiving encouragement or access to social networks that would allow them to become innovators in, in technical fields. And if the rates were equalized, holding test scores constant, um, you would have quadrupling of the amount of inventors and, and patent filings. Now, of course, that's a bit of a a statistical hand wave. I mean, maybe there's a finite list of things that could be invented in the universe. Uh, But it's it's at least a powerful suggestion that if we sort of broke down some of the barriers to opportunity that exist, we could have a a lot more innovation. Can you, there's one thing that jumped out at me that I thought was interesting with some of the gender-specific findings about- Yeah, it's weird. The roles, can you talk through those a little bit about the roles of having- I think it's like growing up in an area that has a lot of female yeah. inventors. Yeah, so so one thing they find is that people who grow up in metro areas that have a lot of inventors are more likely to become inventors. Uh, then they also find that this is sort of domain-specific, right? So uh, the Boston area has a lot of technology that relates to computers and a lot that relates to medical devices. But they find that in Boston, a lot of the people who are from the Minneapolis area work in the medical devices field, whereas people who grew up in Mm. Silicon Valley work in the computers field. Um, So that it's like, it it depends not just that there is innovation, but specifically what you innovate in. So for Detroit, that's cars. Mm -hmm. So that's fascinating. But then they further find that if you look at woman inventors who are relatively rare, most inventors are men, but that for woman inventors, this exact same childhood thing holds, but that it holds for how many women there were working in those particular fields. So that the Honolulu area, right, has a disproportionate number of women inventors compared to most other places. And so women from the Honol- women who grow up in the Honolulu area, regardless of where they live now, are more likely to be inventors than women from other cities in the United States. And that also seems to hold four the specific subfields, mm-hmm. too. The, the sample sizes start to get small, the like more mm-hmm. fine-grained you look at it. But it it seems like people really sort of copy mm-hmm. people who are similar to the adults that they grew up around. And it's not really clear from this research, like, why or, or exactly how that, that works, uh, which is an interesting thing. Like, mm-hmm. do people, do, like, school kids in Minneapolis know that that area is a hub of the medical device industry. Like, I know that, but I, like, read a lot of papers about economic geography. In fourth grade, you probably... <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I, you did. I don't know what you were doing No, I, I, I mean, I had no idea what the industries in New York were when I was in fourth grade. But so I think that a good thing to do with these sort of very big, groundbreaking empirical projects is to say, like, what might you have thought before that you should now change how you think about it now? And I, I think this has two or three things like that. One thing that you might have thought before has certainly been the dominant political view is that Innovation is very heavily driven 
by marginal rewards you gain from that innovation. And, and they basically find that that's not true because, because the innovations that really do pay off pay off so big. And because most innovations don't pay off at all, marginal tax rates, tax cuts, that kind of thing, the sort of making innovation more lucrative does not seem to be the issue at all. It's also a time-shifting question. When it pay off, pays off has so little to do with when you're actually starting to, to work on it. it, it the, the whole system doesn't make sense. So when they, when they run that analysis and with the tax data, they actually have the ability to do it. They're basically saying lower your prior about how much economic rewards and tax cuts and things like that are, are important to driving information. By contrast, they're saying really, really raise up your sense of how much representation matters. So representation is incredibly important. It's incredibly important in a more fine-grained and specific way than people realize. It matters not just if there are inventors around you, but if the inventors are like you demographically, and then it even then it also matters what they are inventing in, because even if you move away later, you're more likely to to, to stay in that same invention domain. So I think that's really important. I think that there's more and more research that is showing just how important representation is. And I think representation is one of these things that we very easily underweight. Um, and I shouldn't say we, I think a lot of like white men in politics really easily underweight it. It's like, why does it matter, you know, how many folks of X demographic group there are and Y um, field? But it appears to matter a tremendous amount. And also, by the way, that's something that public policy, philanthropic organizations, et cetera, could really do something about, right? I mean, it would not be incredibly difficult to uh, create much more dedicated effort. Philanthropies could do this. Hell, the government could do this, of just trying to make sure that, that people are exposed to more folks like them who are doing things you might want them to do in the future. Um, you know, the fact that there are a lot of female inventors from the Honolulu area you know, there could be a road tour of, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do that are interesting here. Um, but but representation really matters. Uh, and then finally, I think there is just a clear, th this I think is not a huge updating of the prior, but I think maybe a little bit, just opportunity matters. Like opportunity matters a lot. What kind of socioeconomic background you're coming from matters a lot. And it matters so much. And I thought this was one of the really striking statistics that, a poor, like, black or Latino kid who is absolutely at the top of the math distribution in third grade is about as likely to become an inventor as a mediocre or less than mediocre white kid who is more average in the income distribution. And so what you're basically saying, I mean, this is really the twice as good phenomenon in action that it it's not really just about talent um, in order to overcome socioeconomics. You're, you really, like, like, Kids from more privileged backgrounds can be worse than average and do as well as the absolute most brilliant kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. And that should really upset us. Like, that's a really bad thing. It's a bad thing with huge overall implications for our economy, too, because we're missing out on, on what they call these lost Einsteins. Um, and, you know, to the extent that you thought that uh, all of this was driven and a lot, to the extent that you have a deterministic view of poverty and you think that it's ability doing all this, this should make you update that prior. I think it's interesting to get this paper in the middle of the tax debate we're having right now, where yeah. we're talking a lot about how to grow the economy, how to stimulate growth. There is, in the tax bill, as you know, you guys talked about Friday on the weeds, there is a preference for cutting marginal rates, for giving people more incentives to innovate. And a lot of that, I mean, there's very little in this that focuses on creating those opportunities earlier in life. If anything, I'd say there are things that cut against creating those opportunities earlier in life, like getting rid of the, um, or starting to tax tuition waivers, which I think would be a huge barrier for someone who is does have that aptitude, who is good at math, who wants to get a PhD in computer science, but now has to find a way to pay like $8,000 in taxes on money that they're not actually receiving. A lot of the intervention, though, it really focuses on when someone's made it, like when someone has their company and they are creating things and they are doing things. I think the Chetty paper that we're talking about now, like the prior, I would see updating is like, when should the policy intervention happen? Like, when is the moment that you are going to capture that lost innovation? And I think it suggests it's much earlier. I, I don't think it suggests a clear policy intervention. Like, I don't know what is the policy tool you use, and I'm sure there's many you could use to try and increase representation, to increase the ability to see people like you in the roles that you would want to get into. 
But I think the clear thing that I see is it suggests moving those intervention, interventions much, much earlier. If you're just doing them for the people who have already become inventors, then you've kind of like given up that whole sector of like the lost Einsteins, as Ezra was saying, by targeting, by targeting those folks who are already successful. It's like this whole other severe that doesn't get as many policy interventions, but I think this Chetty paper suggests really should. Yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, I don't know, just to like pound the table on this, right? Like the the image of conservative policymaking, right? It's like it's very straight out of of Atlas Shrugged, right? It's this idea that like what is happening today in America that the reason economic growth over the past twenty years has been disappointing relative to the twentieth century is that lots of people who totally could be making great, dynamic, world-changing businesses are simply declining to do that because they would not become rich enough if they did it. And so they're like, they're out golfing instead. But if their tax rates were lower, they would come in off the golf course and there would be this like amazing stuff that made us all so much better off that we didn't even care that the income distribution was skewed. I think that's obviously crazy if you say it. But like this kind of research it tends to help confirm that, that like, in fact, there are a lot of people who it seems like when they were really little kids were indistinguishable from the people who do go on to do these big inventions, but that along the way, through, you know, it can be a whole mix of things, but like a lack of representation of people who are like them, just poor performance in the school system, you know, opportunities to go to college, informational barriers, whatever it is, right? That like, People are not contributing as much as it seemed like they once could have because they didn't have the chance to develop their full opportunity. Not because they were sitting there thinking like, man, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, it seems like his after-tax wealth is like not really as big as his pre-tax wealth sounded like. So I'm just not going to bother. I'm going to like go manage the CVS instead. And like, but like that is really like, that is what is wagging everything that happens in American policymaking is this idea that people are just like, they could do it, but they just, they choose not to. But if we cut their taxes, then they're going to. And I don't don't see anything about like the life cycles of actual human beings that supports that view. I think that's weeds. Weeds. Love it. Um, well, thanks to everybody for, for listening. Uh, thanks to our producer, uh, Peter Leonard. Uh, check out the Weeds Facebook group. Check out the Weeds newsletter. Check Give out Vox questions. Media's other podcasts. Ask us questions in the Facebook group. How do you sign up for the new Weeds newsletter? I don't oh, know. Yeah, no, you, what you have newsletter. to do is you check out the newsletter. You go to vox.com slash weeds hyphen newsletter. Uh, you will find it there. It's it's pretty good. It's I really read it good. myself. It's I, excellent. We just, we, we but we need, we need the love. We need the subscribers. Uh, Going to be back on Friday talking about the FBI and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm.